Star Wars 7x7 episode 1797. Today we dig into the production phase of Solo, A Star Wars Story with the awesome book by Rob Bredo and some fun facts about changes in the movie and things that have never been done in Star Wars or possibly any other movie before. Let's go. Hey Rebel Rouser, I'm Alan Voivod and this is Star Wars 7x7. Thank you so much for joining me for this episode where we are continuing the conversation about Rob Bredo's book Industrial Light and Magic Presents Making Solo a Star Wars Story by Abrams Books. And again, thank you so much to the fine folks at Abrams Books for sending me a copy to check out and talk with you about. And today we're going to talk about some fun things about the production process because in the writing of this particular section of the book and with the photos that accompany it, you start to get a sense of something that up until now has been a little bit mysterious and it remains a little bit mysterious and you know, that's okay. Like they don't have to put all their cards out on the table about this, that's perfectly fine. But seeing how the the overlap happens between the stuff that Lord and Miller did on Solo A Star Wars Story and the stuff that Ron Howard did on Solo A Star Wars Story, well, some of those some of those overlaps, some of those layers become a little bit more evident in the production section of things. For example, you can see photos of the Vandor location shooting. So they actually brought the crew and the cast to Vandor to the Italian Dolomites to be able to shoot them for those scenes, for the train heist scenes, or the scenes that happen before and after, if you will. And that's Lord and Miller that are on set for those things. And additionally, you can see them photographed in sets that were designed for the Kessel sequences as well, the indoor portions of the Kessel sequences. The outdoor portions, incidentally, were filmed, I guess you could say they were technically filmed on location, but they were basically filmed in England, like just outside of London and just on in the open air with like, you know, giant, you know, tarps and, you know, faux walls like put up to try and protect them from being seen by the general public. But as Rob Bredo notes in one point, the set was big enough that it could actually be indexed and seen on Google Maps, which is crazy to think about. And, you know, in looking at this book and more of not only conversations and pieces from other people who collaborated on this film, but also interviews that Rob does with some people as well, what comes to mind is the notion of something that Ryan Johnson, a phrase that he used to describe the making of the Empire Strikes Back book all those years ago by Alan Arnold, and about how there were so many unguarded conversations that were recorded in that book, and that it was the sort of book that you probably would never see today because of just the way that uh, people are so rabid about, you know, celebrity culture, movie culture, pop culture, <laughs> pop culture media, and Star Wars in particular. And, you know, the rabid fandom that springs up around these things. And I would say that in some instances, this book actually offers some unguarded conversations. For example, John Kasdan, who is the co-screenwriter for Solo A Star Wars Story, has a couple of pieces in this book. One of them talks about how the scenes that took place with Dryden Voss, with Paul Bettany's character, were hotly debated, that's the phrase that he uses, over the course of the, the whole production of the movie, and how those scenes developed and 
ultimately he says that they filmed two different versions of everything with Dryden's Voss or everything that happened on Dryden's yacht. So that is another place where you kind of get an idea of how things sort of, you know, how things changed, how things evolved from being the Lord Miller version of things to the Ron Howard version of things. And yet, you know, it's almost a bit of a misnomer to phrase it that way because the script was being developed by John Kasdan and presumably by his father Larry Kasdan as well in part of this process. But Larry's actually not mentioned a heck of a lot, at least in the production section of this thing. It sounds like a lot of it is John Kasdan on set helping to kind of tweak things on the fly as need be, especially when Ron Howard came on board and, you know, looking at some of the scenes that had already been done. And as we know, Ron, you know, took pains to try to preserve as much of the original work of Lord Miller as he could, and yet he did have license to reshoot some of this stuff too. However, the book does not go into any of the challenges in that, you know, bumpy time space where things weren't going well and then ultimately Lord and Miller were gone from the project like it doesn't cover any of that and I'm frankly glad and ultimately it it really isn't part of the subject matter of the book I mean they're there to talk about the visual effects and how it played a role in the entire production of the movie and that sort of thing you know isn't really a part of the process however I will say that the book is a very strong you know testimonial for the professionalism and work ethic and creativity and stewardship of Ron Howard coming into the middle of this project and doing everything that he could, not only to bring it to a satisfying conclusion, but doing so in a manner that you know, didn't allow for the possibility of creativity. No, quite the opposite. It actually allowed for changes to be made, for ideas to develop, for new ideas to be considered, and to do so while still having to deal with an incredible deadline and all of the things that a movie would still have to do, like the thousands of visual effects shots that would have to be done and managing to do that while integrating the visual effects process, not just in the post-production process, but all the way back into the production process as well. And there are things in the book that are, I guess, not necessarily so much visual effects, but they're tied into the visual effects side of things. But you find out these other amazing facts, like the fact that from a costume department perspective, this movie had more costumes than any other Star Wars movie before it, which seems rather remarkable when you consider scenes like, you know, the ones in The Force Awakens in Maz's castle or the scene on Canto Bite with all of those characters there. And yet this is the movie that has more costumes than any other. Well, that is pretty amazing. And also shooting on set for the Vandor train heist. One of the things that gets pointed out is the rig that they built for filming on set. Not only did they have fans that were blowing wind at a rate of 40 miles per hour in the faces of the actors or the backs of the actors, depending on which way they were facing, but the rig that they built for filming was, it weighed 30 tons and could be rotated 90 degrees on its axis within three seconds, like under three seconds. So going from flat horizontal to vertical in three seconds, like, Moving 30 tons in less than three seconds, that's insane. And also being able to move and shift 15 degrees in either direction as well. Like, you know, just the engineering feat 
of what they had to do for this movie is just absolutely astounding. And there were a couple of other little factoids that I hadn't been aware of as far as the making of the movie. First of all, the fact that Amelia Clark apparently had a leg injury at some point while they were filming, and when they were on location in uh, the Canary Islands for the Savarine set, she was actually on crutches. So she had dual crutches on her arms and was having to slog around in the sand on crutches in between scenes. And then when she was actually filming, like had to walk without her crutches. So, you know, what a trooper. So, you know, good on Amelia Clark, holy cow. And there's another fun bit about uh, Warwick Davis, who, of course, was originally Wicked the Ewok and then has managed to show up in every Star Wars movie since. Well, he was actually at least three characters in this movie, or at least in three different scenes in the movie. He was on Savarine as part of Enfys Nest's crew. He was also in the Corellia spaceport, and he was also on Kessel in a droid costume, too. And there's one other aspect of the production filming process that I will share with you that that kind of messed with my mind as well as far as what scenes are actually filmed on location, like in the physical real world versus what's filmed on set inside Pinewood Studios. And I'll share that bit with you after the break, so stay tuned. Hey Rebel Rouser. If you've got a business that needs to reach a dedicated audience of Star Wars fans, or you know somebody who does, then you might want to reach out to me. <laughs> I've got a show that reaches thousands of people between the audio version, the video version, and our social media channels, and I'd love to find out how I can help you with your business ventures too. Just reach out at sw7x7.com sponsors, that's plural, S-P-O-N-S-O-R-S, that's sw7x7.com sponsors, and let's see how we can work together. Welcome back. So the scene that I just, I swore, I would have sworn to you took place somewhere in the real world is the scene on Mimban. Like, you know, all those mud battles and the aftermaths thereof, all of that took place in Pinewood Studios on the largest stage set that they have, which is the 007 stage, apparently. And... Yeah, that was all done indoors. Period, paragraph, end of story, which is just insane. And a couple of the amazing things, you know, there are a lot of amazing things about <laughs> the whole scene, but the fact that they were able to drop that walker into the shot and they didn't have green screens or blue screens because of the fact that they had all the, you know, the dust and the smoke and all, you know, kicked up from the environment. So they couldn't get that into the scene the way they normally would. And so, you know, they had to still find a way to make that work as a, you know, computer generated after the fact process, which is amazing. And then as far as additional shots go, as far as uh, additional photography pickups and that sort of thing, the scene where they're boarding the AT hauler, that was something that was added after the fact, after principal photography was over. And the whole thing was basically created digitally. So you've got the, the studio and walking up to the thing, but the AT hauler itself and the lights and everything entirely made up and digital. It's just, it's insane. So that 
is just some of the remarkable stuff inside Industrial Light and Magic Presents Making Solo a Star Wars Story. We'll talk about some post-production stuff tomorrow, including the Kessel Run, which went through its own series of iterations, but you know, I, I won't spoil that conversation just yet. We'll talk about it tomorrow, but for today, that is going to do it for this episode. Thank you so much for joining me for it. And of course, as always, may the Force be with you wherever in the world you may be. This podcast is not endorsed or sponsored yet by Lucasfilm Limited, Disney, or 20th Century Fox. It is intended for entertainment and information purposes only. Star Wars, the Star Wars logo, all names and pictures of Star Wars characters, vehicles, and any other related Star Wars items are registered trademarks and or copyrights of Lucasfilm Limited or their respective trademark and copyright holders. May the Force be with them. All original content is copyright 2019 by Star Wars 7x7. We hope you love it.